Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, June 17th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. I want to engage in a brief disquisition with my colleague, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. How are you? About our, I'm good about our July-August issue, which I believe we should have at least part of up online uh, today. And then if we don't have it all up today, the rest will be up tomorrow. Um, double issue, uh, our one double issue of the year, uh, longer than than others. Uh, we've got so much good stuff in it. Indeed we do. Uh, we have uh, Leah Leibovitz, his uh, first appearance in commentary, talking uh, about making the case about why Jews are not white. We are our own thing. Right, and it's a, it's a, it's a really fascinating and original uh, piece. Not, by the way, if there's anything wrong with being white, which is part of the point. Right. Uh, it doesn't matter what anybody is, but uh, but uh, but ascribing uh, Jewish identity uh, and saying Jewish identity is analogous to almost any other identity on earth um, is itself an exposition uh, or exposes, let's say, uh, the factitiousness of this whole idea about white, white adjacency and white privilege uh, in a really uh, startling and original way. So that's a great piece uh, by Liel. Uh, no Jews are not white is the is the name of it. Um, Christine Rosen, uh, senior writer. Hi, Christine. Has two pieces. Hi, has two pieces in the issue. I do. Uh, your big piece is uh, something that will be familiar to uh, to listeners of the podcast. Uh, and, and all out assault on on the teachers unions and their behavior during the pandemic year. Yes, it was extremely cathartic to write, and I appreciate being given the space to do it. And yes, our listeners have heard me uh, rant and rave about the teachers unions for for quite some time, and it was actually useful to sit down and think through the ways in which they have abused their power and obfuscated about their intentions and and otherwise harmed America's children on a mass scale during the past year's uh, emergency shutdown orders and whatnot. So um, hopefully people will, it's certainly not going to gain a ton of agreement. And I I hope that the teachers that we have as listeners understand that this is about the unions and their political power and not an attack on individual teachers. But I do hope it also prompts many teachers and parents to reconsider what they might need to be doing on behalf of their kids going forward um, as schools reopen in the fall. Yeah. Now, speaking of uh, in your other uh, piece is about uh, this um, inconsistent application of uh, politically correct standards for silencing employees. Let's just put it that way. Uh, Why don't you uh, give people a sense of that? Yes, this was a, um, there was a little blip of a story about Google's uh, chief of diversity. Uh, Turns out he's kind of wildly anti-Semitic and had been writing about this on his blog before joining Google, but kept it up once he was uh, at Google. And uh, when this was exposed by our friends at the Free Beacon, they did some reporting on this and, and broke this story. The, underwhelming reaction by the same people who were scolding Google for having uh, James Damore, uh, an engineer who worked for the company, who challenged some of the sort of ideological orthodoxy about why women and men sometimes choose different professions and, you know, the the complementarity of the sexes. He challenged that internally and was fired. This guy was publicly calling Jews bloodthirsty murderers, and he just got transferred to a different job. So I was talking that the hypocrisy of how these standards are applied, this was a was a 
pitch perfect case of that. And it was also a case that was rarely discussed in the mainstream media. And I try to explain why. Right. Well, this is in your media commentary column. I'm going to read one sentence from that column uh, about all this. You say, quote, which is why, as of this writing, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and most other mainstream media outlets that avidly covered the Demore case have completely ignored the Kamau Bob story. They employ their own Kamau Bobs, and that is sufficient for them to cast a blind eye on the matter. So that's Christine's two pieces. I also want to commend to you uh, Mayor Soloveitchik, commentaries roasty this November. We'll be telling you more about that and how you can attend the roast uh, in New York in November. But uh, Sully, as he is known, our Jewish commentary columnist, has a really beautiful piece about how um, the Chancellor of Austria, Sebastian Kurtz, during the war with Hamas, uh, elected to fly uh, the Israeli flag from the Central House of Government in Vienna, and how this represents a kind of redemption of Vienna, which um, is, of course, the city from which Hitler emerged and whose leader in the late 19th century not only inspired Hitler's own political uh, awakening, his name was Karl Luger, was the mayor of Vienna, but um, also Luger's deep and serious and severe anti-Semitism was a key spur to Theodore Herzl in Herzl's determining that Jews had no proper home in Europe, could make no home in Europe, and needed a homeland of their own. Um, This is an eye-opening piece. Uh, I didn't know a lot about this. Um, uh, that's often the case with Sully, who has a way of writing about these matters uh, in an entirely original fashion. And that that piece, uh, which is called um, How Chancellor Kurtz Redeemed Vienna, I commend to you highly. We'll talk about other stuff. Great piece by Terry Teachout on Nelson Riddle, who, uh, who was the guy who sort of turned Frank Sinatra into the greatest popular singer of all time. Um, uh, and a lot, a lot of other stuff. So uh, that's the uh, July August issue, and also with us, though he does not have a piece in the issue, as ever, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, guys, so uh, Biden, uh, Joe Biden, and uh, Vladimir Putin had their uh, summit meeting or whatever you want to call it yesterday uh, in uh, wherever the hell it was, Geneva. Uh, and uh, Putin came out first, gave an hour-long press conference in which he revealed himself to be among, uh, you know, he's a he's a thug and a monster and a killer and everything. He's also excruciatingly boring. Uh, I mean, this was one of the most boring, you know, he's a guy who now has spent 20 years, no one ever telling him to shut up, and so he really has no idea how to, like, stop answering a question or finish what he's saying. Uh, and of course, you know, said some offensive things about how, how could the United States talk about, you know, whether or not I, what I did, what happened to Andre Navalny was bad when, you know, they, they are holding protesters from uh, January 6th in, you know, in, in, in jails. And that, that's uh, so, so unfair, thus proving that he's probably still in touch with Roger Stone. Um, and, uh, and then Biden came out and, um, I got to tell you, uh, uh, he was kind of strikingly neocon. Yes, I'm saying it. He was strikingly neocon, which will not surprise uh, all the you know how the Trumpers who listen who 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 have decided they hate neoconism and they hate everything about us and all this. But um, basically, what Biden said is, I sat down and uh, I sat down from uh, next to Putin or across from Putin, and I said. 
Um, if you keep doing cybercrime, uh, we have capabilities to stop you. You don't know what they are. I know what they are. And uh, better stop. And he said, quote, I'm just going to read you uh, the quote of, uh, he said, uh, I told him that no president of the United States could keep faith with the American people if they did not speak out to defend our democratic values, to stand up for the universal and fundamental freedoms that all men and women have in our view. That's just part of the DNA of our country. How could I be the president of the United States of America and not speak out against the violation of human rights? I told him that unlike other countries, including Russia, we're uniquely the product of an idea. What's that idea? We don't derive our rights from the government. We possess them because we're born, period, and we yield them to a government. They said this extemporaneous. Uh, the idea that he's senile, I think, is conclusively disproven by the both the by the the integrity and lucidity of this uh, statement of purpose. And it's very striking because, of course, it has been 13 years since we had a president who spoke in, in terms anything remotely like this. Obama attacked the idea of the American exceptionalism born of idea of, of, of the nation born of an idea from the from the from the left. And and Trump, uh, who was much more of a blood and soil type, attacked it from the right. And here is Biden kind of re moralizing uh American foreign policy. Um, and it's it's kind of striking. I share your um, uh, enthusiasm for what we heard yesterday at uh, at this press conference <clears throat> that Joe Biden gave. Uh, it was reassuring and very American uh, in the strictest sense. Um, I'm far less sanguine about the outcome of this summit for the following reasons, and there are going to be three of them. The first is that Joe Biden talked about the off-limits nature of some of this infrastructure that we would no longer tolerate any cyber espionage or attacks on. And I can't be the only one who heard haunting echoes of Dean Atchison failing to uh, uh, include South Korea in the U.S. defense perimeter, convincing Joseph Stalin to greenlight Kim Il-sung's invasion of South Korea in 1950. It was the omission that is the problem enumerating our cyber capabilities and our particular infrastructural targets that we won't tolerate attacks on is a foolish B not going to happen um, because we use cyber espionage as a means of deterrence. We have a gun to the head of Russia's energy grid. We have a gun to the head of Russia's uh, water purification systems as they do our own. And we've known about this for quite some time. That gun isn't going away. Um, and the, the notion here that we can somehow deter private actors who have deniability that the state Moscow ha, has effectively denied um, strikes me as fanciful. The Although, second, to be fair, Biden said he would hold responsible the government of the nation from which cyber attacks by private actors took place. Which to is, what end? To what end? No, but it's a legitimate right second point. Because I think the point here, I, I'll let you go on. I'm just saying the point here is that Biden not precisely echoing the you know the idea that uh, we we would hold we held the Taliban hostage we held we held the held the Taliban responsible for the behavior of al qaeda on its land but the idea that uh, putin knows what's going on he's got a very involved uh, secret service in his own country and so i don't think that we accept that people are doing ransomware from your you know inside russia that we think you don't know 
what's going on. You better figure it out and stop it, or we're going to do stuff to you like you're doing to us. You but, think well, that's- why wouldn't he? Because the solar winds response was cosmetic at best. Okay, you got to um, explain what a that series is. Of sanctions. Yeah, you got to well, explain what that is. This is the most the latest cyber attack emanating from Russia for in April, for which the um, the Biden administration responded by sanctioning Russian government assets. They were cosmetic at best. They could be absorbed, sending a rather clear signal that this is the sort of thing that we will tolerate only insofar as we will put on a dramatic performance of our indignation without actually making you suffer any consequences that you can't endure, which is why when he discussed, you know, how awful it would be and what the response would be in the event that Alexei Navalny died in custody, in Russian custody, um, sounded to me like um, just toothless, a paper tiger. And we have ample evidence to suggest that Moscow believes that too, in part because they absorbed these sanctions in April uh, pretty easily and were subsequently rewarded for their actions with the cut construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So I have to wonder why we engaged in what is, in my view, functionally the fourth consecutive Russian reset. Uh, George W. Bush entered office, Barack Obama entered office, Donald Trump entered office, all of them with the chief foreign policy objective, almost the sole foreign policy objective with, when in, in terms of great power competitors, of finally creating some sort of a comedy and a consensus between Moscow and Washington. This is yet another species of that. And why? Why? It isn't necessarily really a chief geopolitical priority. Our chief geopolitical priority is in Asia Pacific, is in is in Beijing, which is getting very restless. There's this extremely disturbing peace in foreign affairs about the people around um, Xi Jinping, who are very aggressive about retaking Taiwan militarily, because that now's the time to do it. The window is closing, and we can absorb the costs. We can deter the United States. I can only think that this is an effort to mollify our adversary. In, in Europe to finally pivot to Asia. And I see a lot of signs that suggest Moscow is not going to be deterred by any of this or mollified, but emboldened to test the parameters of its freedom of action. Abe, so Noah's laid, laid this out very well. Uh, I think summits are, are, are nonsense. I have a piece about this in the New York Post today. Summits are almost exclusively nonsense. They're performative. Uh, any actual change in policy doesn't need a face-to-face meeting for people to look into each other's eyes and then make agreements. That might have been true in the 19th century when there were no personal communications between leaders. It is not true now. Uh, if Moscow wants to change its behavior, it doesn't need to have a meeting uh, between the principals to make such agreements. Uh, the, the changes take place. Uh, so what what matters in some sense is the rhetoric that emanates from it. Is the rhetoric conciliatory or is the rhetoric tougher? That that's what I would say. What what horrified a lot of us about what happened between Trump and uh, 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 and Kim of of North Korea was how um uh, what would you say uh, conciliatory and loving and friendly the rhetoric was toward you know one of the world's one of history's greatest monsters complimentary yeah right yeah. um and and that then sort of like demoralizes american foreign policy drains it of of its of its uh of of its uni- the unique quality of both expanding you know extending national interest and trying to defend not only the international order but 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 simple sort of like uh, non-inhuman behavior on the part of leaders. 
and 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 Biden just went in a different direction in a very narrow sense. And I I'm not sure that Noah Noah I don't know it wasn't conciliatory. Like what the way Biden talked about Putin yesterday was not conciliatory. It was not aggressive. He didn't you know he wasn't like Khrushchev. He didn't say we will bury you. Um, but, but it was tougher than I expected. Way tougher. So rhetoric. I, I, so, so I, I agree uh, with both of you that he did a very good job, a, a really kind of remarkably good job w- with um, with his comments. Um, and the first thing I thought of, and I think I said to you right after it was over, John, I said, "Well, I think it depends. This it depends how this ends up looking will depend on how aggressive Russia is um, in the in the near future." And what what struck me is not great about about what was what was said and was true, not conciliatory, but kind of reminded me of Obama in a way, was were all these comments on Biden's part about appealing to Putin's sense of Russia's stature to get him to do the right thing. Um, I feel like that's um, a deep misunderstanding, if it's sincere, of Putin Russia's stature or his stature, the Kremlin stature, in his mind rests on his being able to do what he wants to his enemies with impunity. That's where he derives his his sense of, um, you know, uh, that, that's what makes him a revered leader in his estimation, not clinging, right. not not observing international norms. That is that which is what Biden says he was emphasizing to him. I think that's a very important point also. I mean that yes, when 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 he said, you know, uh that uh surely uh, Putin wants, you know, Russia to have a better reputation. Um that yeah, that that what he wants is the reputation for punching for being um uh frightening and 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 uh aggressive and ambitious and in this is one of the ways in which Putin punches way above his weight. Right, right. I mean, Russia is a second-rate economic power um, that is running on the fumes of the military strength that it built up uh, before the Soviet Union collapsed, which was three decades ago, and 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 is 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 somehow still kind of like uh, you know running. It's like uh, it's like one of those channels on, at two hundred on your cable dial that is still there running my three sons, and you know. And stuff like that. Like uh, Russia is not the Soviet Union. Uh, it is not as powerful as the Soviet Union. It is not as formidable. And but Putin himself is clearly willing to do just about anything, um, and that makes him a leader who functions outside of international norms. And that is the key to his success, not his failure. Uh, but you wonder who you wonder who he's speaking to under those circumstances. Does he believe that Putin wants to be respected in that way? Or is he talking in a way that, uh, that, you know, is, is meant more for a domestic audience? I, I, I don't, I don't really know. Well, that I was, that that's an important point though. Cause if you look at the coverage, the domestic media coverage of this summit, there was clearly a signaling there because the, um, the message was definitely received that way by the media. So CNN was just like f- tripping over itself to talk about how humane and fluid and amazing Biden had been. And, you know, of course, totally covering up the, the, the couple of things he botched the day before. And there was this interesting moment, which which got a lot of attention on social media, where a CNN reporter asked uh, 
Biden a question and, and the real Biden emerged just for a brief moment and he snapped at her. You know, why aren't you at, why don't you ask positive questions? Because, of course, this is the man whose ice cream preferences have been a, a very important concern for the mainstream media lately. He's asked he's asked easygoing questions all the time. But the real Biden emerged for a split second there and you could see it. Um, and it interested me that that they kind of doubled down on this message of him as this humane, you know, the, the anti-Trump. They really want to go that that for them is the most important thing. And there wasn't a lot of discussion about uh, Putin in the way that we're talking about him right now. Um, it was much more about how palatable uh, Biden is perceived by everyone else. Right. That the whole world admires us again. And it's a very shallow way of approaching a lot of these questions. But it is seems to be the message you're going to stick with when foreign policy meetings. I, I, I loved the confrontation between Biden and Caitlin Collins. I'm going to defend Biden here. Caitlin Collins starts yelling at Biden as he is leaving about, why, why are you confident that Putin is going to do X, Y, or Z? And Biden had never said that he was confident that Putin was going to do X, Y, or Z. He never used the word confident. He did not, he specifically did not analyze Putin's behavior or summarize, or say very much about what what Putin had said in response to him. He talked about what he had said and what he wanted. And he turned around and he said, "What what the hell are you talking about? I didn't say I was confident. I didn't say I was that he. I was confident he would do anything." What's the matter no, I, with you? I, no, I, I don't no, have any problem no, with right. him snapping yeah, at no. her. What I have a problem with is the hypocrisy of the, yeah. an entire media establishment, which if that had been Trump snapping at a yeah, female reporter, I agree. which he did, yeah. they, it was the end of democracy. You know, yeah, it was misogyny. Mm-hmm. And no, but, no, but, no, but, you know, and, and, and that guild thing that happens, that horrible guild, right. you know, circling the wagons. the wagons thing happened when she did this. And then all these people on social media, all these reports are like, you go, Caitlin Collins. And by the way, this had happened an hour earlier where a CNN reporter, they're all just channeling Jim Acosta. It's all this like, let me have a dramatic confrontational moment at the press conference. I think her name is April Scott. She started yelling at Putin like about Navalny or something I mean, like, you know, how can you behave this way or something like that? It's like, who the hell are you? Like, shut up. You know, like you're not supposed to sit there and like ask a question, you know? I mean, this has now clearly become some kind of part of the specific CNN playbook to have reporters play some kind of a dramatic, do some kind of a dramatic thing so that they can get, attention outside of and create some dynamic which it's cnn is standing there confronting our leaders with the truth and they can they can all go jump off a cliff because this is this is not their role nobody is watching them anyway all the you know these networks have lost 80 percent of their viewers in the last six months you know like go have go go have a little modesty i know you all love each other on twitter but that's all Okay, but I, I just the point the, the other point though to remember is that this that is who Joe Biden is. So he's very testy. He was testy with reporters and with people on the campaign trail. It was always covered up, not reported on, not discussed because he's not Trump, so he's better than yeah. what we had before. But I think we're going to see the more exposure he gets, the more he's going to be himself. And I agree. I think she had an obnoxious question. He's allowed to snap back at her. He's the president of the United States. He can say whatever he wants. Yeah. But I do th- the hypocrisy of how that's covered and how that's perceived drives as you know, it drives me batty. Look, that's going to be great for CNN. 
this is going to be great for Joe Biden. You should survey Russian media. They're all CNNs. They're they're all you know flattering Vladimir Putin's behavior. This is all great from a political perspective. What on earth this was designed to achieve, I have no idea. The power imbalance here between what the United States needs from Russia and what Russia needs from the United States favors Moscow. We need them to cooperate on Iran. We need them to take Iranian nuclear material and and, and process it and, and, and uh, maintain it and de-enrich it. We need them to cooperate on Afghanistan. We need them to stop agitating and supporting the Taliban. We need them to support our bases in Central Asia. We need them uh, on refugees. We need them on cooperation on the Arctic. We need them. We need them. We need them. What do they need from us? They need sanctions relief. Guess what they're going to get? Guess what we're going to get? The imbalance is going to be hard to ignore in the very near future. And I have no idea what this was designed to achieve, save a, co- a strategic, cooperative and predictable relationship. And the predictability is going to be American concession and Russian achievement. And I don't see any other way out of it. Well, you know, you make a good point. And you know what else? <laughs> you know what else? I don't think this is true of anybody on this podcast. So I'm going to ask just the audience. Are you a proud cat person? If you are, you love your cat. But that doesn't mean you love having a litter box in your home. That's why I'm talking to you about Kitty Poo Club, which takes care of the more unpleasant parts of cat ownership so you can just love your furry friend without any ambiguity. Kitty Poo Club is a convenient all-in-one monthly litter box solution. Every month, Kitty Poo Club delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled with the litter of your choice. Boxes are leak-proof, eco-friendly, have a fun design for every season when the month is up. You just recycle the box and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you. No changing used litter and no more cleaning the box. You can customize your order based on how many cats you have and choose from four different litter types. Kitty Poo Club has a no-risk satisfaction guarantee and you can easily customize or cancel anytime. And right now, Kitty Poo Club is offering you 20% off your first order plus a free dome free scoop, and free shipping when you set up auto-ship by going to kittypooclub.com slash commentary. Just go to kittypooclub.com slash commentary to get 20% off your first order plus a free dome, scoop, and free shipping when you set up auto-ship. That's kittypooclub.com slash commentary. Okay, I want to move on to a cultural topic, and it's a little tricky for me to talk about. Uh, That's the movie In the Heights. Uh, which is tricky for me to talk about because one of its producers is a very close friend of mine, Anthony Bregman. And so uh, uh, I love him uh, and I am, I am, I'm excited for him that he has produced this major motion picture that's gotten great reviews. And, uh, and I, I, I'm a big fan of the movie as I was of the show. Um, uh, but I have a personal interest. So I, it, I, 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 I stipulate that at the beginning uh, because we need to talk about a manufactured controversy uh, that um, uh, that gives us a, a real glimpse into the kind of uh, torturous dead end logic uh, that wokeism and uh, and and the world of um, uh, of uh, leftist activism uh, forcing its way into the control of the conversation about uh, about culture uh, and trying to control popular culture as well, all, all aspects of culture, how it functions. Um, 
So In the Heights is about Washington Heights, the neighborhood uh, in the north of, of Manhattan uh, that is largely Dominican, uh, though it has a lot of different, uh, uh, it's a Latino neighborhood, was uh, for many decades a, a very Jewish neighborhood. Henry Kissinger's from there, Dr. Ruth Westheimer's from there. Uh, and there are still there are still pockets of Jews, including Yeshiva University in Washington Heights. But it's a Latino neighborhood. And Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator of Hamilton, uh, as a kid at college in Wesleyan, wrote this musical about his home, about his neighborhood. Oh, he's actually from Inwood, which is a little north of Washington Heights, nonetheless. And it was about sort of like this corner in Washington Heights, and there are three businesses, and the people who run them all have dreams. There's a there's a there's a bodega owner. That's a sort of little kind of like little mini supermarket. There's a cab company and there is a beauty salon and it's about the people who work there and they all interact with each other. And uh, the, the lead character is a Dominican and the, uh, and the, uh, the, somebody else is a Puerto Rican and somebody else is a Cuban and they're, and, and, and they're, they're, they're all kind of friendly with each other. Um, but there are also little bits of tensions here and there, including racial tensions between a black employee of the cab company. Uh, this is in the stage version and the guy who runs the cab company uh, who is Puerto Rican. So, um, uh, and, and the, the, the black guy who works at the cab company is in love with the daughter of the guy who runs the cab company and the guy in the cab company in the show doesn't want his daughter dating dating this guy not only because it's not just because he's black but because he's not puerto rican he's not latino and so there's a whole and they all have dreams and there's a lottery ticket and it's a musical and it's got fantastic dance numbers and it's all great okay so uh the movie comes out um and uh wonderfully well reviewed and then out of nowhere it is uh comes a controversy one of these controversies you know they flare up somebody wrote a blog post somebody wrote a piece on a website you never heard of or on some kind of idiot pop culture website saying that the show, that the movie uh, does not, uh, makes invisible the Afro-Latino. That is to say the the very dark-skinned, Spanish-speaking Latinos who are not present in in the movie. And and so uh, the movie uh, erases them from the narrative. And so it's all about all these other people, but there are no Afro Latinos and Lynn Manuel has erased them. And therefore the, therefore in the Heights is not representative. It's not representative of Latin culture it needed to have this in it. And it didn't have this in it. Um, and uh, uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda, who has, who has found himself under attack over the last couple of years uh, for Hamilton, of course, his breakthrough genius, sung through musical about Alexander Hamilton for not talking about how evil America is and how, you know, and this whole question of whether or not Hamilton might or might not himself have owned a slave, even though he was, he was the, basically the founder of the anti-slavery manumission movement in the United States, but maybe he owned a slave. Somebody has a document that says maybe Hamilton owned a slave and he's like, and he didn't do enough 1619 project crap in it. Cause it's very pro, you know, it's a, it's a sort of revision of the American experiment in which, minorities play the founding fathers uh, as a way of claiming kind of the universality of the American founding. Uh, Because he himself, uh, Puerto Rican, plays Alexander Hamilton. Christopher Jackson, a black guy, played um, George Washington. And uh, and, uh, uh, Lamar Odom played uh, uh, 
Leslie Odom Jr., excuse me, played Aaron Burr, another black guy. So um, that was that's Hamilton. But of course, when everything changed, he had to say, look, we're a work in progress. We're flawed like the American experiment. Like he kind of played it very well. And this time uh, within the Heights, he said, we're learning. I'm learning. You know, I'm learning. I understand. I'm learning. I'm I'm happy to have this lesson being taught me. Uh, He's a very adept politician. Uh, in the in the world of kind of liberal opinion, and in fact, in the Heights, the movie, as opposed to in the Heights, the show, is a politicized version of In the Heights because the show, which is about neighborhood dreamers, turns into a movie about dreamers, literally dreamers. There's a whole subplot which is not in the show, which was done first in 2008, about an undocumented alien, uh, uh, the nephew of the lead character, who. Uh, who is a dreamer. And so how is, what's going to happen to him? Um, it's very shoehorned in. It's, it's the worst part of the movie because it's not really earned and it doesn't make sense. And the plot device in which we learn that this kid is, 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 uh, is, is undocumented. It doesn't make sense. Um, and, uh, and Maria Inojosa of NPR turns up giving a speech, which is sort of silly and it's, it's not great, but they, they tried essentially, to make it politically palatable, and, uh, and and that wasn't enough. So what happened yesterday, Christine? Well, the wonderful uh, uh, actress Rita Moreno defended Lin-Manuel Miranda against this charge of what's called colorism. You know, oh, he put the darker-skinned people in the background and the leads are all light-skinned. It's, you know, you're erasing our experience, blah, blah, blah. He says he's listening. Rita Moreno says, you know, I'm defending this. This is, you know there's nothing wrong with what he did. It's, you know, this is culture, et cetera, et cetera. And less than 24 hours later, she too had to step back from her uh, support and uh, apologize for it basically. And it's, it, it, it was sort of shocking. And I, I sent um, to you guys earlier this morning, the tweet, she says, I'm incredibly disappointed with myself while making a statement in defense of Lin-Manuel Miranda on the Colbert show last night, I was clearly dismissive of Black lives that matter in our Latin community. It is so easy to forget how celebration for some is lament for others. So both the Manichaean framing of that tweet and the fact that she was compelled to make it just saddened me. I mean, this this woman is a, is a legend, right? She's, what, almost 90 years old? She's 89 years old. Yes. And why is she having to have a public struggle session over over defending a fellow artist whose work in no way was racist and in no way was trying to you know, silence black voices? This is appalling. I was really shocked to see it. And it, it was shocking to me in part because of how quickly her extremely mild defense of her fellow artist turned into her having to perform a struggle session. Here's my theory as to why where she where she fell on her face here. She reacted to this insanity, and it is absolutely manic, um, with indignation. She was mad. Her friend was insulted. And she wanted to defend him in a very public way, um, which lent credence to the accusation, which lent gravity to the accusation by treating it with such, as such a powerful assault on the character of her friend. She should have treated it like everybody treated the accusation against Cobra Kai. 
If you recall, Cobra Kai had a brief moment of being problematic because some blogger you never heard about, writing on a blog you never heard about, got some heat around him when he said that the show was problematic because its cast did not reflect the precise demographic breakdown of the San Fernando Valley, according to the census. I kid you not, that was the allegation. And people laughed at him, and they should have. This is the premise of my book, essentially, is that these people This is your forthcoming book. Forthcoming book. You have another book, which is available on Amazon. Which is much more serious. This other book is is going to be out next year. Laugh Riot. Yeah. and the premise is essentially that she should have laughed at them to mock these people. They are mockeries of themselves. They are absurd caricatures. They are making facially stupid arguments that make them that make them sound manic, insane, insular, creepy. They should be laughed at. But there is there's an interesting thing about this in particular because this this goes to a political question that we've discussed uh, most recently after the last election about the difference between Hispanic voters and Latinx activists, right? Because this was clearly an attack by the Latinx people, and the X factor there is this idea that you cannot that only they can can perform whatever color wheel they have to determine who is you know correctly speaking for the Hispanic community. Real world experience, I agree with Noah, real world experience shows this to be absolutely ridiculous, but they do have an outsized impact, certainly in the media. And I think, unfortunately, in in cultural institutions that are already skewed more to the left than to the right. And so the compulsion, I mean, I, I would I agree, I would love to have seen her just laugh this off. But the fact that she didn't is what worries me. Why did she feel she couldn't laugh it off? She is a legend, literally. Who? Look, what are they going to do to her? I, if, she, if she was offended on, on behalf of her friend, that's a perfectly reasonable response. It's no, just no, not strategically. What she, said, what she said on Colbert was fantastic. And I want to quote what she said, because it's important to note that what she said was commonsensical and true and she had to say something that was untrue to correct it here's what she said you can never do right it seems this meaning lynn manuel miranda is the man who has literally brought latino-ness and puerto rican-ness to america i couldn't do it i would love to say i did but i couldn't Lynn Manuel has done that single-handedly and I'm thrilled to pieces and I'm proud that he produced my documentary. Um, she said, I'm simply saying, can't you just wait a while and leave it alone? There's a lot of people who are Puerto Rican, who are also from Guatemala, who are dark and who are also fair. We are all colors in Puerto Rico. This is how it is. And it would be so nice if they hadn't come up with that and left it alone just for now. I mean, they're really attacking the wrong person which is incredibly true. (laughs) Like the idea that you would say that Lin-Manuel Miranda, who has made the single most Latino movie, who was, you know, creator was one of the creators of the single most Latino movie ever made in, in the Heights in the United States, Hispanic Latino movie has done insufficient, has provided insufficient help and been colorist. Um, is one of, exposes one of the key qualities of this movement, which is that these struggle sessions are being are being created by people uh, who uh, have professional jealousy. That's exactly it. That this is just another avenue by which they can prosecute professional jealousies, and it's so conspicuous because it's almost always the successful who are the the targets of this attack on a sustained level, and they don't end until they have drawn blood or income from their targets. Right now. 
Let's talk about why Rita Moreno apologized. Because she has nothing to apologize for. She's almost 90 years old. She won an Oscar. You know, she won a Tony. She's a legend. That's just how it is. And she should be venerated. And she's not. So why did she apologize? Why is she so disappointed in herself? Well, you see, there's another Latino movie coming out at the end of the year. West Side Story, a remake of West Side Story directed by Steven Spielberg. And in it, Rita Moreno, who, of course, was Anita in the original West Side Story 60 years ago, was released 60 years ago, plays the candy store owner who has been uh, obviously uh, the, the uh, gender switched. Candy store owner who is who is the, ver- the West Side Stories, which, of course, is a version of Romeo and Juliet. Is, she is Friar Lawrence in West Side Story. And she is an executive producer of the movie of West Side Story. And I'm pretty sure that watching what's going on and watching the, you know, uh, authenticity problems and the idea that Lin-Manuel Miranda's version of Latino life in New York is not is deemed insufficiently authentic or insufficiently woke, that Steven Spielberg is, like, worried. He's and legitimately, justifiably worried that he is going to get attacked as a cultural imperialist. Now, let's talk about why that would be. Steven Spielberg is a Jew, right? The screenwriter, who 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 uh, is Tony Kushner, a Jew. Tony Kushner is adapting the book by Arthur Lawrence, a Jew. The songs in West Side Story written by Leonard Bernstein, Bernstein, excuse me, a Jew, and Stephen Sondheim, a Jew. And the original production was conceived and directed by Jerome Robbins, a Jew. Who were, and the play and, and West Side Story is about a, a, a gang of white kids, none of whom uh, is Jewish, and Puerto Ricans, none of whom is Jewish. And maybe it has occurred to um, Steven Spielberg that he's got a real problem on his hands with social media and this kind of coverage, which has now become the dominating coverage of pop cultural artifacts in the United States. And he's made this thing and he wants to win an Oscar with it. And he wants to win best director. And his fear clearly for a year was that in the Heights was going to come and steal his thunder. And now he's got to worry that the movie is going to be canceled because all these Jewish guys have made a movie about Puerto Ricans. And remember, of course, the Puerto Ricans aren't necessarily the greatest, like they're, they're, they're gang members. They got knives. They're doing rumbles. You know, uh, it's, it's not good. Uh, it's not good what they are. Now, when Arthur Lawrence restaged West Side Story on Broadway in 2010, in an effort to deal in very, he was like almost 90 years old, he directed a fantastic production of it, in an effort to deal with this problem 10 years before Wokeness really exploded, he had someone come in and write new lyrics to I Feel Pretty in Spanish. I Feel Pretty being the worst lyric in the show. Stephen Sondheim is embarrassed by it. You know, he's got a He's got a 17-year-old, you know, uh, a Puerto Rican girl singing, it's alarming how charming I feel. He says this is the worst lyric he's ever written. So I Feel Pretty was rewritten with Spanish lyrics. And whom did Arthur Lawrence bring in to write the Spanish lyrics? Lin-Manuel Miranda was brought in to bring authenticity 
to West Side Story that it had lacked because its entire creative team was Jewish. And now Lin-Manuel Miranda is insufficiently pure to provide that kind of uh, cultural cover. And and Rita Moreno has to apologize for having defended Lin-Manuel Miranda on Stephen Colbert's show. Abe, help. Oh, if only I could. Look, people are crying for more Abe. The thing they is, they want to know what you what you think. They want well. To. I mean, the apologists, you know, get me more than the than the woke accusers. We we know what to expect from the woke accusers. They're they are a they're a they're a given. We don't yet know that the apologists are apology or the apologizers are apologizers until they until they do it and they cross that line, and it's always a disappointment. And it's always a huge mistake. You get nothing from giving the, the mob anything. Um, this this comes at a, at a time when uh, there was another so, a story, not not similar, but it but it brings up the same basic point about about trying to be liked by these people. That is that is the that is the mistake. So you know, uh, Tom Hanks, very beloved. Everyone loves Tom Hanks. It's like you know. A favorite of generations of both sexes of both parties, both everything. Uh, he recently wrote a piece uh, for the New York Times saying that um, there should be more teaching about the Tulsa race massacre, which has already gotten a lot of um, recent publicity um, from the from the, the HBO show Watchmen and various other things, and it's, you know, it's been written a about and sort of recognized a lot. Um, now, what for what reason? Tom Hanks, an actor, thinks he needed to take to the Times to write this. I, I, I don't know. I can speculate. It's because he wants to be liked by by everyone. Um, and therein uh, lied his mistake because he was then called out by someone uh, from NPR. Eric Deggins. Eric Deggins of you. NPR. Yeah. Saying... Tom Hanks is a non-racist. It's time for him to be anti-racist. That was the the headline of of this piece at M- NPR. And the idea is, well, it's nice that Tom Hanks recognizes that there's been racism and that there, there should be more awareness about things like the Tulsa massacre. But the next step, if he's to be anti-racist, is to talk about um, how he has been complicit in in racism and what he's personally and how the projects that he's gotten rich off have been complicit in racism and what he's going to do next about it. Mark my words: if he hears about this piece, he will acknowledge it and he and he will then he will be, become uh, anti-racist according to this week's description of it. Can I tell you an interesting detail? I think it's a, a fantastic uh, anal- a fantastic analysis. Uh, I think they kind of knew this was coming because I read this interview last week, um, reading everything about In the Heights because, as I said, my friend produced it. Um, And there's a whole weird detail in it that the actress who plays the daughter of the uh, Puerto Rican uh, livery cab company, in the show... uh, her parents are both alive, and it's about her parents who don't like the guy, the guy, uh, the the the, the African American 
uh, who works for him. They like him, but they don't want him to date their daughter. And uh, she and the mother was eliminated from the movie to simplify the plot. And uh, the writer, the screenwriter, Kiara Alegria Huda said, you know, she hated that because she's very matriarchal and she likes women in powerful positions, but she understood it needed to be simplified. And then uh, they cast a, a young actress named uh, Leslie Grace to play to play this character. And she is herself half black. So the idea was, I had already read interviews about how, see, the character of the mother who is not in the show, isn't in the movie anymore, who is dead. See, she was Afro-Latino. So Leslie Grace, about whom nothing is made, is Afro, is, is Afro-Latino or is supposed to be Afro-Latino. And so uh, they really did reflect that in the show. This is like days before this happened, which means somebody knew it was coming. Somebody knew. And, you know, it might have been that when they were filming, somebody had a meeting with the Afro-Latino Actors' Equity Affinity Group saying, where's our part? Why aren't we, what, where's our Afro-Latino representation? And then they said, well, the, the mother, the dead mother... <laughs> It's the dead mother. She's not in the show anymore, but she. And then that's like, okay, well, you know what? You are toast, buddy, because we're not, we're not going for a dead, non non existent character for our representation. But you know what else is really interesting about all this? Um, for people who live by the lights of identity politics and who are f- obsessed with breaking things down into racial apportionments, it's really interesting to see that even for them, or not even that for them. Um, saying people of color only goes so far. Saying uh, black and brown people as one group only goes so far. Um, saying black and Hispanic only goes so far. They, 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 there's, there's room to for further infighting um, and and demanding, you know, sort of more representation in, in more micro ways. And to that infighting, <clears throat> infighting point. John, you may have just already answered this question, but I want to ask you guys if there's something to the venue in which these comments were made, because this is the second time that the Colbert show has exploded because somebody emerged, you know, went into this liberal bubble and Colbert has entirely transformed that program from what Dave Letterman made it into a comedy show into an effort to reinforce whatever the liberal narrative of the day is. Uh, Is it possible that because these comments were made in a way that offended the audience, the woke liberal audience that comes to this sort of thing to have their priors, re, you know, restated to them, just as John Stewart did when he advanced the lab leak theory the other day. Is it the venue that is as much the problem as the comments themselves? Well, and Colbert, Colbert weirdly has now become, if he continues to do this, which I sort of hope he does, because I love watching the, the, the liberal audience's heads explode every time one of their heroes says something that they find not woke enough. I mean, he's kind of become a confessor, right? I mean, there really was shock when Jon Stewart went on about the lab leak hypothesis. Um, Probably a little less shock when Rita Moreno defended her friend, but still the idea, I mean, he actually should carve out that niche if he hasn't done it already, because that, that, there's no one else doing that. Trevor Noah is a propagandist. Um, I mean, you can go watch Bill Meyer on uh, Meyer on uh, HBO. And that's interesting because he's, he's much more eclectic, but 
the venue, I think that's a really important point, Noah, because people watch those shows just like they watch Saturday Night Live now to see mockery of the people they know to be wrong and they know to be racist and backward and horrible. And they enjoy sitting there and laughing at those people. They really don't like to be very introspective themselves and be forced right. into introspection in those venues. Right. So I want to uh, just uh, uh, pull back a little bit. Uh, I, I said this, I read that whole peroration about Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton and Hamilton being this wildly optimistic sort of view of the American experiment uh, as being uh, belonging to everyone. And this is how you make it belong to everyone by saying that uh, Alexander Hamilton, of course, came from um, uh, Nevis, uh, you know, is an immigrant and uh, he's the immigrant and uh, everyone in the show uh, is an, as an American, could be anybody, could be anybody, could be any race, could be any creed. And this is true if you do a sort of biographical pageant of the founding fathers. There's absolutely no reason why they all have to be played by white people um, if you're making a pageant. In fact, we know from high school productions of everything that, you know, it, that this is not the way it is supposed to go. This is not just the theme of Hamilton. It is in part the theme of In the Heights though much more directly about the world of um, Latino-Hispanic America as seen in this neighborhood. Remember I said that uh, one, the lead character, Usnavi, is Dominican. Um, the, uh, this, the old woman who is everybody's uh, grandmother, Abuela, um, is Cuban, and the, uh, the, ca- the cab company owner is Puerto Rican, and the hair salon owner is, we're not quite sure, what she is and there are tensions between them but they're basically all friends and this is about the latino melting pot there is a song the highlight song in the movie which is called carnaval del barrio um in the middle of a blackout uh and everybody is on stage like so hot and then the head the the person who runs the beauty salon says uh since what you know, why are you all lying around you know since when uh, since when are are uh, uh, Latin people afraid of heat? Um, let's all have fun and sing together, and we'll have a carnival in the barrio. In the barrio, and her assistant says, uh, "Sing." She says to her assistant, "Sing something." And her assistant says, I, "I don't know what to sing." And she says, "Just improvise." And so she sings. Uh, my mom is Dominican Cuban. My dad is from Chile and PR, which means I'm Chile Dominican, but I always say I'm from Queens. And everybody cheers. And then as the dance number goes on, different people from different nationalities, though they're all Americans, start singing about how they're from Mexico, they're from Cuba, they're from Guatemala, they're from Puerto Rico, they each hold up a flag. But basically the idea is that they are all American. They are all American. And the end of the show is about how this character, Usnavi, whose dream is to go back to the Dominican Republic where he was a kid and open a uh, open a bar on a beach, um, realizes uh, that he lives on an island. He wants to go back to an island, but he lives on an island, and the island is Manhattan, and the people he love, people he loves are in Manhattan, and the neighborhood that he loves is is in the United States, and he is an American, and he is going to stay 
in Washington Heights and in America because it is just as much his as it is anybody else's. This is a the classic melted. This is the drama of In the Heights, and it is betrayed at every turn by exactly the kind of culture that he, with his apology and his saying he's learning and all of that, um, his play is almost explicitly ideologically opposed to, which is this is the modern melting pot within the Latino Hispanic community. That is what the power of In the Heights is about. It is about how these are all Americans and they have a dream. And you know what that dream is? It's the American dream. It is, maybe it's winning a lottery ticket and all you get from that lottery ticket is $96,000. You're not getting $600 million. What can you do with it? You can pay off your debts. You can pay for college, which is one of the uh, dramatic points in the show. You can, you can, you know, you can uh, not have to move your beauty salon to the Bronx, but you can stay where you are as the rent is going up. Whatever it is, it's a dream. Everyone has a dream, and ultimately that dream is the American dream, and that is what is being denied everyone by this bite, by this shattering of the American political experiment that is represented by this kind of thinking. That's the great traitorous heart of identity politics, isn't it? Instead of allowing people to craft their own identities in a free society where they they are able to do that and and to raise children to create even new identities after them, identity politics and particularly woke politics insists on telling you what your identity is and on how that identity uh, comes with directives about how you should behave, the kind of art you can produce, the kind of novels you can write. It is such a step backwards in terms of just race relations and how we even talk about race, obviously. But it's that suffocation of creativity and that suffocation of of uh, an individual's power to define his or her own path and his or her own identity that's weirdly contradictory if you look at a lot of the ways that the woke left wants to talk about, say, sexuality or gender. Um, it, it's just a crushing of that. And it's it's horrifying, really. It's, it's something that's really worth fighting every time uh, there's a new battle in this war. Right. So, guys, I got to talk to you again about the X chair. You've heard me talk about it, the luxury supercar of, 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 of office chairs with that dynamic. Uh, variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable support to your lower back, and that new XHMT technology that delivers heat and massage technology right to your core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, all perks that make working from home or the office a joy. It even has four different massage modes and fast warming heat. So instead of that old, uncomfortable office chair, you can look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the extra difference until you feel the extra difference. For yourself, X-Chair is now on sale for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call one 844 X-Chair. has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. So we got to go, uh, but uh, you never want to end on an ad. So uh, I'm going to uh, p- pull an audible and ask if anybody is reading anything that you want to recommend to anybody, aside from the July issue of Commentary, which you can get at commentarymagazine.com, where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. Anybody reading any good? Uh, anything good? You're not. I'm reading something that isn't out yet, so I can't recommend it. Yes, you can. Yeah, you can't? Well, how, when is it going to be out? I, I honestly don't know. Because you can pre-order it. 
Uh, you can pre-order, but I don't know if it's available for pre-order yet. I'm okay. reading uh, Batya Unger, uh, Unger Sargon's forthcoming book ah. on the news media. Okay. Um, which I'm enjoying quite a lot. And when it comes out, you should pre-order it. Okay. Batya Unger Sargon, uh, red-pilled, one of the red-pilled people of the universe, uh, was somebody that I uh, made vicious fun of on, on Twitter during the days that I was on Twitter for years as the woke opinion editor of The Forward. Um pre-woke and then something happened uh she's still pre-woke she's 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 very no pre-woke. she was woke i'm saying she was woke right. then oh okay she was well, woke post-woke. something happened i think it was sort of and it, it was it was the explosion of anti-semitism and the refusal of her colleagues on the left to recognize anti-semitism from the left that just kind of like she just uh it's a fascinating transformation Bacha Unger Sargon has made. She's a, a good Twitter follow. Um, and I apologize to her now for having uh, been so mean to her before. Um, uh, although maybe I spur, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe my cruelty had a purpose. Sort of like one of those abusive, profe- one of those abusive teachers at an English boarding school. Maybe she learned her lesson all along, but I doubt it. I think I was I, probably I, I, made it worse, not better, and I apologize to her for that. I should say I'm being very cryptic about it, which is probably not good for her. So the book is called Bad News. I don't know if it's out or not yet. It's not. Go yeah. check it. Okay, but yeah. that's what it's called. Author Batya, called Bad News. When it comes out, check it out. I, I, John, I just want to say on that point, um, I welcome all converts to anti-wokeness i think it it is i've I've even shocked myself with my openness on this point because i'm talking about a lot of people that i formerly really disliked but if they are if they are anti-woke they're 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 welcome they're welcome in my world in my home wherever you know whoever they are um and i'll never come around to glenn greenwald in part in part because it makes it's hard in part because it makes us different from 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 the wokesters right because they don't forgive True. Fair enough. Yes, but so but no, yeah, but hard. yeah, but but yeah. Uh, Glenn Greenwald is a is a bridge too far for me, also. <laughs> but uh, but almost everybody else, including George Packer, whom I whom I haven't uh, whom I haven't uh, thought uh, that highly of, uh, and who has been nasty to me in the past, um, has been writing impressively on some of these uh, on some of these matters. Um, so anyway, uh, good point. Something to look out for. Whenever it comes out toward the end of the year, Batya Ungersagran's book, Bad News. And with that, we will be back to you tomorrow. Uh, for Noah, Abe, and Christine, I'm John Pothoritz. Keep the candle burning.